The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information, including faculty disclosures and how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This series is supported by independent educational grants from Myovant Sciences, LTD, and Pfizer, Inc. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Rahman, and I am professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific program titled Disparities in Care and Barriers to Access for Patients with Advanced Prostate Cancer. It's really my pleasure to introduce my guest, Dr. Samuel L. Washington III, who's a urological oncologist and faculty within the Department of Urology at the University of California in San Francisco. His research focuses on understanding how racial and ethnic differences in treatment strategies uh, may be based on race and other socioeconomic factors and how these may impact survival outcomes for patients with genital urinary cancers. Um, Sam, uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Really our pleasure to have you on this podcast today and obviously to get uh, about 30 minutes of your time uh, here. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about this topic. Great. So Sam, maybe as we sort of, I, I, the, the topic that I, we talked about, I introduced the title, but really to maybe help our listeners, why don't you maybe just give us a a brief overview of what we're going to be covering in the next 30 minutes, and then we'll dive into some of the uh, the, the deeper details on, on some of the various issues. Yeah, so we hope to cover a few things during our time. Uh, recognize current patterns of use for systemic therapies for advanced prostate cancer. Discuss identify disparities in access to care with respect to treatment. And this will really help us understand opportunities to improve quality and compliance with treatment across different treatment populations. And then within that, we'll discuss barriers, specifically financial challenges associated with treatment, as well as approaches that may help improve uh, delivery and utilization of treatment for different patient populations. Great. So I guess that this podcast is really um, talking about advanced prostate cancer. And, and I feel like probably one of the things that's really helpful for our listeners is really to define what, what is advanced prostate cancer and what are we talking about here? And, and maybe that'll help with the framework as we start talking about some of those more detailed or nuanced elements. So Sam, maybe just talk to us a little bit about, you know, defining the disease state of, of advanced prostate cancer and maybe some of the, the, the specifics with regards to that. Yeah, I think the term advanced prostate cancer can encompass quite a few different disease states. So it's good for us to go over all this together. It can mean anything from biochemical recurrence after local therapy. It can encompass metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, as well as castrate-resistant non-metastatic and metastatic disease. So it really is an umbrella term, and we'll have to kind of couch our discussions in that specific disease state or context. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about within those sort of broad domains that you described. Talk to us a little bit about what is what is exactly 
castrate sensitive disease mean and, and maybe define that for us? Not only talking about the prostate cancer, but also the testosterone levels. So that castrate sensitive disease is when PSA levels decline in response to castration, either through medications or surgical removal of the testicles. Castrate resistant disease is when you start to have a PSA rise despite castration from one of the two methods we discussed. So you've talked a little bit about castrate sensitive and castrate resistant disease. You explained very nicely the difference between the two. What about um, maybe the, the volume of metastatic disease that a patient may have um, within each of those different buckets? How would you sort of use those definitions there? Is there a certain like low versus high? And, and how, how is that sort of nomenclature? Yeah, I think it's increasingly important, important now that we understand de novo versus progressive. So did, we, did they first present with this disease or did it progress over time after previous treatments? Is it high volume or low volume in terms of where the metastatic burden is? Is it all contained around the prostate and the pelvis involving bone, involving other organs? And then high or low risk is another way to think of it in terms of how we categorize disease using different metrics to help us understand which treatments we should be discussing with patients. So I think all of this really goes back to probably the first point that you made, which is that the term advanced prostate cancer truly is a, a very broad umbrella type term. And, and there are really a lot of significant subgroups uh, even within that broad umbrella term. And, and, and I think as we go into some of these details regarding some of the therapies and the guidelines, obviously um, we're going to have to focus perhaps on different populations as opposed to just broadly saying what would be applicable for advanced prostate cancer. So you really nicely defined for us some of the, the ways that we characterize advanced prostate cancer. Let's maybe pivot now and can you bring us up to speed on where we are with guidelines with regards to um, systemic therapies for patients with advanced prostate cancer, and maybe walk us through some of these different um, scenarios within that broad umbrella? Yeah, if we were to reference NCCN guidelines for prostate cancer, for example, we have to take into account not just the extent of disease using the categories we discussed before, but also life expectancy because that will really play into how we manage the disease and optimize that time left for the patient. For example, uh, if we look at castrate sensitive disease, M0, then we would talk about ADT, androgen deprivation therapy and monitoring versus M1 disease that we see based on imaging, ADT plus abiraterone, apalutamide, enzalutamide, or ADT plus docetaxel plus abiraterone, darolutamide, or ADT plus radiation to the primary tumor. And we're starting to see a lot more data out in each of these treatment options in terms of the benefits and survival benefits and quality of life and outcomes uh, from each of these treatments. If we were to look at say M0 castrate resistant disease, we look not only at extent of disease, life expectancy, but also doubling time of the PSA. And that helps us understand if we should discuss ADT with monitoring versus ADT plus some other secondary treatment as well. And so I think you, you showed very nicely there that really the spectrum of treatment is anywhere from 
um, monitoring all the way to, in some cases, monotherapy or perhaps in an intermittent manner to doublet therapy, even triplet therapy, and then maybe even multimodal therapy incorporating not just systemic treatments, but obviously um, uh, local treatment in the form of radiation to uh, the, the target organ. And, and as you sort of alluded to, I feel like, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that this is continuing to be a process of evolution, right? I mean, the, the treatment paradigm five years ago is not the treatment paradigm now. And I feel like everything we're talking about now may not necessarily be what we talk about in four to five years as more data comes out. Is that, is that an accurate statement? I think it is. It's the exciting part um, as we build on what we've learned before. So patients I see in clinic, I tell them, you know, life expectancy 10 years ago with what we had very different than now, going to be very different 10 years from now. And as we build on the evidence and move from monotherapy to doublet or triplet, we also have to understand clinical trials, for example. So understanding what we're able to provide for patients and that gap between what we're able to do in clinic and what we're getting from clinical trials and guidelines. So um, I, I'm going to sort of now pivot a little bit to perhaps, you know, the areas where obviously you, you have a lot of research interest, which is you've highlighted for us what the guidelines tell us. And you gave us the NCCN guidelines, and, and you very nicely showed that in the NCCN guidelines, based upon evidence, certain treatment paradigms based upon these different disease states. So I, I guess one question I would ask you is, what really happens you know, maybe in reality if you look at large data sets and, and what is actually occurring? And, and concordant with that is, what is sort of the impact of uh, very different aspects of disparities of access to care and, and, and how does that impact the therapies being delivered? Yeah, this is a very interesting question, especially as we move from kind of observing differences to how to address them. And we've tried to get at this question with administrative data sets, claims data. We're able to get granular information in our own clinics, but when we look nationally, we have to use kind of things that are not as specific and use proxies for what we want to measure. But from any of these data sets, SEER, National Cancer Database, internal data sets, we can see that access to doublet therapy, for example, varies dramatically by geography, by race, by socioeconomics. We've seen even when we look at uh, medication administration, even variations within different hospitals in the same state, within the same healthcare system. So there's broad differences in how people are getting treated in terms of the data that we're seeing thus far. So maybe give me a little bit of a sense of uh, let's just take, for example, uh, the state you live in, California, and, and um, what is some of the data from the California Cancer Registry with regards to the treatment of men uh, with metastatic or advanced prostate cancer? Yeah, so this was a great, interesting study looking at California Cancer Registry. Nearly 14,000 men uh, with metastatic prostate cancer. We saw that over a fifth did not receive any ADT which is really the backbone or the base layer of our new treatment modalities and approaches. We saw that the highest rates of ADT were for men above the age of 75 and lowest for those over the age of 85. That part not as surprising. We saw men residing in neighborhoods of the lowest socioeconomic status were least likely to receive ADT. Interestingly enough, which is the cheapest of all the medications, 
but here we're really starting to see where people live. And we saw that there was no difference by race or ethnicity in terms of receipt of ADT within this data set. But we are seeing kind of patterns when we adjust for things beyond just race or ethnicity in and of itself. These social factors where people are receiving care is really impacting what they're getting. And then maybe, um, maybe going one step beyond just California, do you have any sort of sense or any data when one looks at sort of larger registries, whether that's you know the Aqua registry from the AUA or any other type of real world data that that sort of um, maybe dovetails with some of these observations that you just described? Yeah, and this is where we tried to really dive into this further by looking at practice patterns within urology practices using the Aqua registry, really quality improvement focused granular data within uh, urology practices. So pulling in an automated and curated fashion data from medical oncology practices across the country, treating the same state, so metastatic disease broadly defined. We saw that really there was a difference. Most oncology practices, nearly 85% uh, of patients seen at oncology practices were receiving doublet therapy, ADT plus some other novel hormonal therapy, whereas only about 30% were noted within the aqua registry, reflecting practice patterns within urology groups across the country. And when we drilled this down, we saw broadly differences within different census regions of the country. And as we drilled down even further with aqua, we started to see variations within each uh, smaller state level as well. Not surprising, but gave us more insight than we had before from kind of standard population level data set. Sam, one one question on on that study, and I, uh, you may or may not know, but did you observe any um, change or perhaps improvement over time? Meaning that thirty percent number, which obviously is low, uh, and obviously much lower yeah. than what our medical oncology colleagues are doing. Did did urologists get better as time went on with with incorporating, you know, at a minimum perhaps doublet therapy? Um, for some of these cases? Yeah, we saw improvements over time. And this really gets at the granular data that we need, which is what's happening. Is it just urologists practicing on their own? Is it a multidisciplinary approach where partnering with medical oncology is improving that and just differences we're not getting with the data sets? So things are getting better, especially as more data comes out. The penetrance of that data into all of us practicing across the country is having a beneficial impact on so um, I guess one of the, you know, as we look at this, I think some of the key points that you've really talked about is that, that we, we really need to be able to look at um, ADT therapy and uh, therapies in general um, across really different populations. It's probably helpful to have some granular data as opposed to broad strokes, I guess, to really affect change, right? I think that it's when you have sort of large population data sets, you can make observational uh, uh, sort of reflections, but trying to really drill down on where there might be deficiencies, where there might be the opportunity for improvement. Just as you've looked at your research, um, what are sort of the, are, is, are there particular data sets that you have found to be very helpful, um, whether that's in your local environment, regionally, nationally, that allow you to sort of drill down into, I would say, maybe the, the nitty gritty as opposed mm -hmm. to maybe just the high level observational data? 
gets at the issue of population level data doesn't tell us what's happening for the individual. So it's really been a combination of different data sets. Concert AI is the one that we got a data award to look at. They use curated data from medical record systems, uh, EHR systems. Other companies as well, obviously drug companies monitor the usage of their own drugs. So that's another opportunity to start combining data sets. So filling in the gaps from one with others like area health resource file, county level data to understand what's happening in the region, clinic level data from Aqua to understand what's happening at the clinic. And we really start to highlight the multi-level nature of the problem rather than just kind of the national average that we're seeing. So one of the questions I would sort of have, and it sort of pivots to the next um, the, the next element that, that I, I'm sort of wondering about a little bit, which is when you see perhaps um, a, a, a treatment paradigm that's much less than we would expect. So you gave a great example there that 30% of urologists are using ADT perhaps as monotherapy, I think is what you'd mentioned compared mm -hmm. to over 80%. Um, and when you see potentially low rates of use, is, is that in your opinion, or at least your thought, is that an education issue for the practitioners? Or is this a barrier in certain populations with regards to, for example, finance and the financial elements of being able to afford some of these uh, therapies? Maybe your thoughts on both of those, but specifically maybe focusing um, on, on the financial aspects of care. Yeah, I think it may be all of the above. Understanding the relative impact is the part that we don't have yet. So that's really where I'd say no one is deliberately trying to deviate from guidelines, but there are challenges, resource availability, financial challenges that we have to understand. Right? We know systemic therapy associated with high out-of-pocket costs, that financial toxicity, the lack of flexibility from a finance standpoint to pay for drugs will limit access to some of these newer therapies. So when we talk about doublet or triplet therapy, we know the costs can range from hundreds to thousands of dollars per month, depending on the regimen. And that's just not something that many of us can afford, broadly speaking, across the country. Depending on where you are, you may not even have a facility that has access to the newer medications based on the recent trial. So it's really understanding how insurance plays a part, what coverage you're getting for these newer medications and the out-of-pocket costs that'll really impact what care people are getting as well. When, when you, can, can you give us a sense a little bit on, uh, when you think about prostate cancer and you think about these therapies moving earlier and earlier into the disease paradigm, right? We talked about doublet therapy. We talked about triplet therapy. We talked about how years ago, maybe these were only in the M1 space. Now some are moving into the M0 space. We, we've discussed how it used to be more castrate resistant. Now it's moving to hormone sensitive so uh, obviously, um, there, there, there is, you know, whether the term is financial toxicity is appropriate. It's, it's at least the financial challenges. Maybe give a sense of what do you are you aware of any type of inroads or any type of programs or any type of efforts to to try to mitigate some of this cost so that we can translate these great data that we see in trials into what actually happens 
in practice? Yeah, I think thankfully they're from the government on curtailing some of these ballooning costs. So we know for Medicare beneficiary, beneficiaries, for example, there's more work being done now, federal intervention, to decrease those costs for patients so they do not continue to balloon to larger and larger portions of their monthly income. We know local programs will have different opportunities. Uh, there are ones at UCSF which were leaning on nonprofit organizations to help with some of the costs. Uh, we know that there's probably local groups intervening in different ways or leveraging clinical trials to offset the financial costs of some of these, but it's really taking multiple levels, including the federal government, to really boost that effort to decrease the financial challenges for these patients. So uh, you talked a little bit about some of the efforts being done federally. And, you know, I always find that, um, you know, when, when we have these conversations, it's easy to point out um, all of the things that are challenges, right? And all the things that perhaps we're not doing quite as well as we want to. And, and I feel like one of the important things is hopefully to talk a little bit about um, what can we do? Um, what are some of the approaches that we can do that actually address the problems that we're seeing? So, you know, I, I, maybe I call it the solutions part of the program. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's always helpful to, to sort of talk about what, okay, we, we've highlighted the scope of the problem. Um, what are some of the things that we can do or we are doing to maybe help um, bridge that gap a little bit? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of opportunities for solutions here. I would say not all of us know locally what the problem is where we're at. So a lot of times the solutions, we have to identify what's happening in our own clinic and our own healthcare system in terms of barriers. And that's really understanding if it's things related to administration of the drug, for example. Is it intravenous or injections that require clinic visits? That's a barrier for people who can't take time off work, who have other responsibilities. Is it uh, a discussion of resources in terms of medications? In, we have discussions about globally the role of, say, a bilateral radical orchiectomy in terms of ADT rather than medications for some patients. It's really understanding in your own area what the barriers are. That allows us to tailor. And that's where the solutions come into play, where we can start leveraging clinical trials, engaging with community leaders, engaging with local organizations. So, um, I, you know, and I, I, as we were talking a little bit earlier about um, men who had advanced prostate cancer and those that were um, the, those that were getting um, ADT. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you'd even mentioned from the California Cancer Registry when you looked at men with metastatic prostate cancer, I think, uh, I think you mentioned, was it like a fifth, almost 20, 20% did not yeah. receive ADT. And, and when you said that, I thought to myself, well, metastatic prostate cancer, this, this patient unfortunately likely needs lifelong androgen deprivation as a backbone. And, and at that moment, I wondered to myself, you know, are we underutilizing a simple tool such as bilateral orchiectomy, which at a minimum would get that compliance rate higher? Yeah. And, and, you know, in your sense, is that, is that something that is being discussed now more? Or just when you think about 
the cost parental administration of some mm -hmm. of the ADT medications. Maybe just give me your thoughts on that one specific element. Is, is something like bilateral orchiectomy coming back on the, on the radar more and more? I think we've all kind of seen it show up more as part of the discussion. And I'm glad it's coming up as an option. Not that every man, man needs to get that. And we know there are things associated with that in terms of body image, bigger questions about what that impacts. But when it comes to medications being a cost prohibitive option, it is good to know that there are other potential avenues for us to go through. So I think it is becoming more of a discussion. Utilization, I think, will pick up as costs limit the options for some patients. Um, and hopefully we have that shared decision-making opportunity to go over that with patients. Maybe a, a second question I, I'd have for you a little bit is, Obviously, a lot of um, a lot of the discussion often focuses on um, race and socioeconomics, uh, particularly when you're talking about uh, therapies and, and and access to care. Um, what about? Uh, and I think you alluded to this, but what about just geography and simple um, the the ability to uh, make an hour and a half drive or a two hour drive? Uh, especially deliver therapy. So things that can't be delivered by a, via telehealth or telemedicine, you're actually getting an active treatment. Um, is there work being done on, on sort of geographic barriers to accessing care, perhaps even distinct from race, ethnicity, and socioeconomics? Yeah, I really think of geographic variation or that difference by where you live as a separate factor that interplays with all the others. So there's definitely work being done in active surveillance. Um, across the country, there's work being done in bladder cancer, prostate cancer, to really understand what's happening, how treatment may vary based in California, where I live now, versus Texas, where I grew up. And we know that care is not going to be the same everywhere. We know that's true across the board, all healthcare systems. Um, so it is an opportunity for us to address systems level issues that vary at each site. And that's an exciting place to be in when we talk about solutions, because we can really drill things down based on what our healthcare system has and doesn't to form kind of the next step in terms of solving the problem. And then maybe my, my last question I would sort of ask you is, and it's it sort of, it's, it's perhaps related more to your research than, than uh, but, 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 also tangentially related to this conversation, which is, you know, you talked a little bit about clinical trials and clinical trial accrual. And, and you know, it seems to me that this is a critical element when looking at disparities, because you're, you're, if your trial population that is accrued is a homogeneous population that's not reflective of a general population, then your observations may be wholly accurate, but, but they may only be wholly accurate in that population that you have right. studied. Um, and, and so maybe talk a little bit about that is, is that from maybe from your research angle, which is um, really the thought process and how to better engage maybe minority populations uh, or those that are of lower socioeconomics so that our clinical trials have a more diverse um, composition. Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting area. I can speak kind of from a research standpoint and then my roles in the cancer center where I'm at. Sure. Uh, from a research standpoint, we want to understand these social barriers, social needs. So we've started to 
change how our cancer center asks questions, collecting this information. But we don't just collect it. Now we're partnering with our community community of office, or excuse me, our, I'll rephrase that. We are partnering with our community uh, outreach and engagement office. I have a funded role to bridge that gap between our prostate cancer leadership and that office. So we can really bring community members into the discussion of how do we get clinical trials to patients? How do we get patients to clinical trials? Um, because those, and I frame it that way because the priority is a little bit different for each group, the institution mm-hmm. versus the community. Um, but now we are starting to prospectively monitor the barriers that our clinical trial participants are engaged with and also understanding the demographics of our participants so we can understand what's going on. And that's really helped in, from a research standpoint as well from an implementation research standpoint, but also in terms of just helping our community get more access to everything that's needed. <clears throat> that's great. Well, well, Sam, I really want to um, uh, thank you very much uh, for your time. I, you know, it's, this is always, a, a, I think, a large topic and a daunting one, to be perfectly honest, for a lot of urologists. I think that when you start to get to advanced prostate cancer, uh, or advanced GU malignancies in general, it, it, it goes into a domain that many uh, urologists and urologic practitioners are, are perhaps less familiar with. And I really think you did a, a great job sort of distilling down um, to a much more simplistic level how to think about the disease and obviously um, some of the challenges we face with regards to um, access to care uh, across the spectrum. So I really want to thank you, Sam, for your time this afternoon. Really, really appreciated having you on. Thanks for the opportunity. And I'm excited to uh, see what we can do as a field to make things better. Uh, again, thanks to Dr. Washington for his time, to our audience. Thank you very much for your attention and uh, for tuning in. And uh, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And on that site, uh, Dr. Washington has given us a number of references on some of the studies that uh, we uh, spoke on and some other work that's being done uh, in the field. And and obviously, for those of you that want to take a deeper dive into it, I encourage you to reference those articles that he's posted. Sam, again, thanks so much. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Thanks again. Bye.